Hang on, let me turn the volume up. Yeah, we gotta hear that music. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. I'm trying to run the soundboard and hold my baby at the same time. It's a challenge. Thanks for joining us this week. <clears throat> Man, what a what a week it is. This I guess there's so far, I haven't looked at Twitter, but it seems like Friday might be quiet this week, unlike last week. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But joining me today is uh, Scott Nelson. Hello. Welcome back. What's up, dude? It's good to be back. We missed you last week. You know, I... I did miss being here, but I was also really happy to be on vacation. So that's fair. I think those both things are true, and I can hold both those ideas in my in my head at the same time. That I, I at once missed being here and also loved being on vacation. That's good, right? Ideally, you would be on vacation and then still call into the pod or something, but your wife might frown on that. Yeah, but I think you know that's central to like our discussion today that we as people need to be able to hold complicated ideas in our heads. Um, like that you can both miss your work and also enjoy vacation. That's right. We'll, we'll tie that in later. Uh, also with us today, of course, is Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hey, Andy. Hey, listeners. Thanks for being here. And we have a special guest today, Joshua Harris-Till. Hello, sir. How's it going? I just hope that my Sounds as great as yours. I don't know what's going on here, but it's magical. <laughs> well, this is your first time on the pod. We're very excited. Um, someday it'll be even more exciting when we can meet in person again. Uh, also, as I mentioned, my daughter Margot is in my lap. So if you hear any baby noises, she's trying to chime in. She got to join me yesterday at the Capitol for a, uh, a rally. Her first, I think it's her first political rally in person. Uh, we partnered with the League of Women Voters for a people-powered Fair Maps Day of Action uh, about redistricting and gerrymandering, and uh, Margot got to hang out and stand with me on the podium while I gave my uh, my update. So far, I think she likes it. A little, uh, uh, we're just tiny activists, right? Little tiny activists. All right. Well, um, of the many things we're going to talk about today, we want to start with Joshua uh, because, as we mentioned last week. Um, he is leading the charge on a veto referendum um, against House Bill 1674. Joshua, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where this is coming from, how it got started, and where we're at right now? Oh, for sure. You know, um, so I've, I've done a lot of protesting uh, in my day, and I'm oftentimes uh, one of the peacekeepers there, which means that you're usually in the front, which is, believe you're not one of the worst places you can be, because anything that negative happens usually comes from the back, but it usually the response happens to the folks in the front. Um, one of those such instances was a car who was trying to get through an intersection um, through 23rd and Classen last summer. And I was like, hey, you know, trying to get the protesters to quit yelling at him, trying to get him to turn around. And he just had this really like, like very tense, like you can see his knuckles turning white, his body was very tense and he was like staring me down. And I'm just confused because I'm like, there's this huge intersection of people. Why would you try to keep moving forward? Um, luckily, two cops at the time came up. They knocked on the window. His whole demeanor changed. He was like, oh, yeah, sorry, officer. No problem. He turns around, drives off. Um, the unfortunate reality is we passed this law now. 
that one not only makes protesting in the street like that uh, illegal, which is an infringement on the First Amendment, right? To peacefully assemble, we as people have been taking to the streets in this country for literally the entirety of, of our history. Uh, you don't think that the, like the Boston Tea Party, like they were like, oh, well, let's make sure we stay on the sidewalks, everyone. Um, but it, it infringes upon that. But the second part is that, you know, it removes civil or criminal liability from somebody who runs over protesters, even if it kills that protester, um, if they just feel like they're in danger and they practice due care. That guy at that time could have felt like he was in danger and he would have mowed through a crowd of people, even though he didn't have to. Like, that's the unfortunate reality that's created from this. The third part that, uh, you know, is still significant, but maybe not as big as the first two, is that it charges a fine to organizations who are found to have been a conspirator with the person. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thrown a protest, but if you do, tons of people come up. They're all in support of whatever it is that you're doing. And if one of them does anything uh, nefarious for any purpose, or, you know, considered nefarious, because I really don't care as much as I should about a broken window when you're protesting, like, the murder of, of innocent people. Um, but then the organization can be charged up to 10 times the fine amount of that individual. And it's like, what is the connection? Like, how deep does that connection have to be? Is it a person who's a board member? Do they have to, have like, be a dues-paying member? Or is it just someone who says they associate with you? Uh, and so it's just a horrible bill, horribly crafted, and I don't think that they talked to anyone about it in the districts, about whether or not this was not only necessary, but wanted. And hearing uh, that they were possibly passing it, I vowed, it was April 14th, I actually just saw a reminder of this uh, yesterday. April 14th, I said, this is passed and signed and I'll run a veto referendum. Maybe don't say things like that because it creates a lot of work for you. Um, but the paperwork's filed, it's on the books, it's state question 816. We're waiting on the signature form from the Secretary of State, but as soon as we get that, uh, we'll full steam ahead to, to get these signatures and get on the ballot. So, first of all, I want, I want to say um, thank you, by the way, for, for taking this on. I mean, this is a law that's atrocious. I think it's it's targeted in, you know, some people say it, there's been some headlines that are saying, like, it's 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 a veiled targeting and i'm like it's not a veiled targeting it's very clear who this law is designed to try and deter um so thank you for having the um the the space the time and and just the the presence to be willing to take this on i think that's super important for our state to have leaders that are willing to do that i do have a question kind of about strategy so as you mentioned there are i mean as my, my standard disclaimer on the show, not a lawyer, but to my non-lawyer mind, as you mentioned, it does seem like there are some pretty clear like constitutional implications here um, with respect to like the First Amendment and freedom of assembly. Um, why pursue trying to deal with this through a veto referendum as opposed to through the court systems and just get it tossed on constitutional grounds? Uh, so there's another group who's working on the legal aspect of it. I um, am not a lawyer either, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> if anything taught you, told you that, then it was wrong. Uh, but no, I, I work within the realm of the things that I know and I understand. So organizing and politics is, is my field. 
uh, legal stuff as other folks feel. And so there are people who are working on the legal challenges to it. Uh, I just personally don't trust Oklahoma uh, courts. Uh, we have a 4-4 split right now. It's supposed to be appointing somebody. He is a dumpster fire in literally all of the decisions that he makes. So I don't imagine that this will be a quality pick, but I could be wrong. Hopefully I am. Uh, but I think that more so than just having it tossed out for being unconstitutional, which we see happen in this state all the time, I wanted to send a very clear message to the legislators that you can't continue to do stuff this egregious and there not be, you know, folks standing up uh, against it. And so I think that we're going to get way more than the 60,000 signatures that we need, uh, 59,320 to be exact. Um, but I think that that's going to send a very clear message to the legislators that they missed the mark on this one. Uh, this wasn't something that people wanted. It's not something that people agreed with. And it's really, though it's targeted towards BLM, this affects so many other groups. Those uh, anti-abortion folks who are, are outside of Planned Parenthood, well, three or more of you, and now you could be considered a riot and somebody could run you over. Uh, unions who are picketing uh, for better wages or fairer practices, they usually march in front of the entrance. Well, now three or more of you, you could be considered a riot and have somebody run you over. Uh, the teachers march, right? The students march, the women's march. There's so many different organizations that this could uh, uh, impact. The souls to the polls, where churches march to, you know, vote. That's another situation where the biggest issue is not whether or not the law protects a person once they get to court. It's the fact that the person who gets hit by the car or gets killed by some, this motorist is still hit by a car or killed, whether or not that person has to go to jail or not. Uh, creating this um, feeling of justification in people's heads that they can hit people and potentially not have to go to jail is completely dangerous and irresponsible. And, and I don't even understand why I have to try to explain that to these legislators. They just, they should have known it already. And Josh, one of the ironies is that um, OK2A, which is a Second Amendment organization, is supportive of this legislation, but it could also put their efforts at risk because they're another advocacy group that often comes together to utilize their, their First Amendment rights to, to push for their um, belief systems, right? And so uh, I'm glad that you're raising the point that the implications uh, can impact people across the political gamut, um, that it's, it's it's bigger than just the impact that it could have on um, one group that's being targeted with the legislation. Another piece that I wanted to bring up, Josh, if you can uh, go into this before I have to, to leave for meeting, um, is the the third piece of the, the bill that you mentioned that I would argue is, is equally significant to the other two pieces. And the encouragement of potential um, distractors intentionally coming into spaces to cause issues. One of the things that we saw over the past year with the protest for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others who have been killed by police violence is these accusations of Antifa showing up organizing to cause destruction to property, to harm people and other things um, when that 
wasn't the case for what was happening here in Oklahoma. So can you talk about any concern related to false accusations or even um, using this as a way to, to target groups to then even hurt them financially by essentially setting them up? Is that a possibility? I I not only think it's a possibility, I think it's a strategy uh, for folks. What you have to think about is one, fines in general are only uh, penalties for poor people, right? The more money you have, the less you care about fines. So when you think about a conservative organization with a lot of money and then a uh, you know grassroots organization without a lot of money, you can send a member and say, hey, we're gonna pay the fine just get involved with this, say you're connected to this organization. They have to pay a $1,000 fine. The organization has to pay a $10,000 fine. Now that organization might not exist anymore. Uh, the reality is what connects these two organizations is so insignificant because it's not properly defined uh, in the legislation. Uh, we're old OIL folks. Uh, you know, bad legislation uh, gets called out every single time. Not having proper definitions gets called out every single time. This bill, in every section that it tries to create change, leaves open the door for um, horrible, horrible uh, a lack of definitions and ambiguity. Uh, in the first part, uh, unreasonably uh, inconvenient. Uh, if protesters make the road unreasonably inconvenient, well, what is what's unreasonable? Right. Uh, in the second part of it, if if they ran over somebody and, and they took due care, well, what is it due care? Like they went over at 20 miles per hour when they could have did 35. Uh, and then in the last section, uh, if it is found that they are a conspirator, well, what equals that level of conspiracy? These every single section of this is poorly written and creates this window of, of opportunity to attack. Uh, different groups, but it wasn't done in, in intelligently at all because it's not going to protect their allies and target their enemies. This targets everybody. Joshua, one of the things I wanted to, to point out um, to talk about process, and that is that y'all will be the first group to use the new form by the Secretary of State's office. So this is related to a bill that passed last year in 2020 in the session where they, and I believe Leader Eccles is the one who ran the bill, uh, but basically it, in the signature form, the, the form that you sign when you're signing a petition has historically had one format and everyone had to use the same format and they, they are changing it to a form that will have fewer lines on there, so fewer names on the signature form, but it'll collect a little bit different information and it'll, it is designed or it, it is being designed so that it can be um, uh, like optically scanned into software so they can check it against the voter file. Yeah. Um, so first of all, let me say this form was supposed to be created November 1st of 2020, and it is still not created. And that pisses me off every single day because people are hitting me up like, where's the form? Where can I sign? And I'm like, I'm still waiting on the Secretary of State. Is the clock ticking on you to get signatures right now and you don't have the form yet? So the clock is ticking and it is not. You have 90 days from signing die, but as soon as the governor signs it, you can file your paperwork. So if the form was ready, I could have been getting signatures all week. So I am losing time, but I am not losing the official 90 day window that most people have. It's like stoppage time in soccer. He's got extra time right now. Right. 
but as we all anyone who's collected signatures knows every day matters right like it's not like not like there's a lot of time 90 days is not much time and it's way shorter than most states but uh, yeah to your point when this law passed many of us who have ever run a ballot initiative um, or a veto referendum or anything have been watching this closely because presumably at some point we'll have to use the same form and we've been very curious about what it's going to look like from my conversations with uh, representative Eccles, it sounds like it'll be uh, the example i used was a uh, a super bill scott you know super bills for like medical billing where it's like any of those forms have little boxes where you kind of fill in also like those credit card applications you get in the mail or whatever like little little spaces for each letter that can be scanned in now I believe the bill passed with the intent to make uh, signature audits easier. And in fact, the bill requires the Secretary of State to audit signatures uh, and confirm that they were valid once they're submitted, which is not part of the law previously. Um, But it also means that it's beneficial to campaigns because optical scan software is improving all the time and it instead of having to have volunteers manually decipher all everyone's name and stuff and sort it in and put it in the list and match to the voter file, you can have software do it. So it, if in theory it makes campaigns more efficient, but it also makes signature challenges more efficient on the back. I was going to say, because they're going to match the signature to the voter file, right? I mean, I think of a lot of people whose signature does not look the same every time they do it. So it's Does, not the signature that matches. They, they have to match it on three data points, and the data points include first name, last name, street address, zip code, county. Maybe not county. I think because county is on the form now, and I think county is not on the new form. But in so if someone moves, right? Like in theory, if you just have first name, last name, and zip code, that would be sufficient to match to the voter file, provided they list the same zip code at which they're registered to vote sure. and all that. But it. I think it it should. I don't know that it's going to make a big impact. We will likely see more signature challenges because right now there's like a it's a it's cost prohibitive to for both sides to do a signature challenge unless they are very certain they're going to win because um, you basically have to pay all your attorneys to be there present the entire time and it can take weeks, right? And I don't bill by the hour like attorneys do but it's a lot of money <laughs> even if they have staffers it's still thousands and thousands of dollars and uh and so this will make it faster and easier but it also means that campaigns um have to be extra judis- judicious about ensuring that they got valid signatures that they submitted so either that's turning in more than you need like a bigger buffer to make sure or um uh or just making sure that you kind of assess them or audit them as you go. I think this law also changes it where it's like less likely that the whole form would be turned out and they will do it on a line by line basis, which might be beneficial in some ways to campaigns. So. Yeah, I think so. One, I think the, the big thing is that it's cutting down on the signatures per page. Right. And, and I've heard both seven and 10. So that literally makes you have to spend twice as much on printing that at minimum. Uh, if not three times as much, which is just, uh, again, kind of an attack on those grassroots organizations who are trying to do um, petitions and referendums. But I think that it's also, you know, trying to reduce uh, the usage of these, right? 
Uh, there, there was all kinds of uh, laws mentioned. All of them couldn't get passed. But you know, when I ran um, the veto referendum on permitless carry, and we got you know like forty thousand signatures, thirty-seven thousand signatures in two weeks, they were like, "This uh, process is a lot more dangerous than we thought it was, and we have to change it immediately." And so you're seeing that happen. I would like to believe that you know this will make the process a little more streamlined. But I also, you know, again, this form was supposed to be made in November and it's still not ready. And they're talking about, well, when they first told us they were like three to four weeks, we should have it ready by then. And it's like there's this this makes no sense that we're making it this hard to create a form that's supposed to be already created, that's supposed to help the process. Um, and have they said if if you can if they're going to like give you a PDF that you can print or are you going to have to get the forms however many you need from the Secretary of State because I heard that was in the discussion that you might have to like oh I don't know buy the forms from the Secretary of State with no stated cost or what that might include they were like oh it'll just cost like normal copying costs and I was like I doubt that's how you're going to play this. Right. So that's, that is very interesting. And I had heard that, um, it would be very, so one of the main things that I know about veto referendums is like, it has to be a pamphlet, right? So it has to be our letter to the governor, the legislation of the bill, the question language, as well as like the gist form and signature form. So I don't like, you would have to buy all of that from the state. And I can't even imagine that being something that they have the capacity for because if you're thinking about printing, you know, four or 5,000 forms, like how is the state going to get that to you in a timely manner, which probably they won't, which is, you know, a whole other thing. But um, I hadn't heard that. I, I should talk to the lawyer and ask him if that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Ask Brian. From what I had heard, like it, it would be like, well, it's like how they do medical billing where you can basically buy a you know a box of a thousand at a time and you buy however many thousand you need um, to go from there. And that would be like if they printed it with like special red ink or something that would have to be used for the scanner. Now that that is whether or not that's how they're going to do it is a whole nother matter. I would hope they're just going to make it a, a PDF that everyone can print. Um, although if you have to have like the gist or anything on there like for a initiative petition then that complicates it a bit um especially as they like this year change the length of the i guess they change the length of the ballot title not the gist which is on the signature page so the other thing is um about processes i guess my question so once you get signatures you turn them in my understanding is that it basically puts a hold on the on the law being implemented and is it until basically that law can be on the ballot for a vote of the people? Is that how it happens? Uh, I'm trying to figure that out as well, because I, I didn't know if it was automatic or if we did an injunction. Uh, the last time uh, legally, I, I want to say that, you know, us meeting the threshold puts a pause on it and says that it has to go to um, the ballot before it's implemented. But uh, which would make sense. Obviously, we have enough time. Uh, I think August, mid-August, late August is the end of our window. Um, so I believe that that's the case. But again, you know, <laughs> there's a lawyer who answers these questions uh, because he knows way more than I do. 
That's right. I, I remember this. I I think last week when we were talking about this on the podcast, I texted one of my lawyer friends and she said, you have to turn in signatures within 90 days of the end of the legislative session. If you do, then the law does not go into effect unless and until approved by a vote of the people. So technically, it's you're not repealing the law, just the law never goes into effect. Yeah, that makes sense. And if you... And back to the back to the timeline. If they don't have the form by sine die, are you losing that time, or do you have? Will you have to file a legal challenge to say like, "Hey, we didn't get our forms until two weeks after sine die. We get those fourteen days back." Like, how does that work? I, I honestly do believe it's a legal challenge. We're looking at if we have to do a legal challenge now, just because for all intents and purposes. We are fouled with the state at state question 816. That has been accepted. It's on the books. It's on the website. Uh, the fact that we can't get signatures right now because we don't have the form is not at all us not being compliant with law. So, um, you know, we're looking at whether or not we have to sue the secretary of state's office to figure out what's going on with it. I really don't want to. I would just like for us to get the form so we can move on with it. I understand that they're really busy. It's the end of session. They're, they're dealing with lots of new laws and stuff like that. But again, this was something that was supposed to be finished last year. Well, it's not like the legislatures approved the form, right? They empowered the Secretary of State to create the form based on their definition and to go ahead. I do think one other thing, though, I think the form only has to be eight and a half by 11 now instead of legal size as it's been, which is anyone who's ever collected signatures knows is a real pain because you got to either buy or create like legal size clipboards to do all this. And uh, and so maybe moving towards a shorter form is helpful, except for your point that it it's fewer names on the page. Thus, you have to print more pages. And I think the last time that I calculated printing, I think for a constitutional thing, we have to get twice as many signatures was going to be in the order of like $36,000, like just for printing costs, um, which was because we had a long petition and, you know, the signature pages and all that in our packet. And that's a, a lot of, it's a lot of dough just to come up with really quickly when you're trying to uh, prevent a, a bad law from going into effect. Can I also make a, a motion that we, again, not a lawyer, can we just get rid of legal size paper, like altogether? Like why, why, why is that shit a thing, right? Like, I'm with you. Why do legal files have to have this giant piece of paper that doesn't fit in anything? No one else uses it. It's stupid. And unless a lawyer can give me a good reason why they need big ass paper, we should just get rid of it. But that's neither here nor there. Well, uh, my neighbor's using his leaf blower because it's uh, Friday afternoon. Um, but yeah, a lot of law firms don't use legal size paper either. I feel like it's just title companies. Like if you buy a house, we still have the folder from we bought our house two years ago because we have no drawer in which it'll fit. So we just have the folder floating around like on tables in the kitchen. Same, like literally exact same. I know exactly where my title <laughs> folder is because I move it constantly because I have nowhere else to put it. And it's infuriating. I think it's a big paper. You, if you look in the big paper, they knew that this legal size uh, paper would be a good way for them to make more money. 
these are the conspiracies uh, <laughs> that we create. I like the conspiracy about big paper. That's a that's a good one. Is that part of? Well, uh, I wonder if that's part of Biden's. I know we we have a lot of paper businesses in America. Is this supporting American jobs? Very well could be. <laughs> so, Josh, if uh, if people if people if they want to donate to your printing fund, if they want to volunteer to uh, collect signatures, if they just want to sign the petition. Um, if they want to help you in whatever way that they can, what kind of help do you need and where can people go to, uh, to provide that? So right now on Facebook, vote no on 816 is the official, official Facebook page. On there, you'll see a Google form where you can sign up on that form, whether you want to get signatures or notarize or donate. Uh, there's a place for you to sign up so we can have your information. Um, we don't have the uh, donation portal uh, created yet. Um, just we really didn't expect Stit to sign this so quickly. We thought we would have a little more time uh, for preparation and just kind of hit the ground running. I've been talking with um, the compliance person and uh, Act Blue about getting us uh, all set up on their end, and uh, had a meeting with a fundraiser yesterday about helping. Uh, us to get some some much needed resources in the door. Uh, but right now, um, if you're on Facebook, uh, vote no on 816. If you're not on Facebook, uh, vote no on 816 at Gmail, I believe is the Gmail that I created for this. Let me double check right quick. Um, I don't want to give people the wrong thing. I have way too many tabs open. That's a thing. That's a thing. That's a problem we all have. Um, but yeah, vote no on 816 at gmail.com is, I believe, uh, the email. And we could really use uh, any and all support. You know, we need people who are out there uh, gathering signatures. Uh, we need folks who are able to notarize. We need folks who can. Uh, pick up and drop off in different locations where we don't have something just readily available uh, in terms of like kind of the infrastructure around this. Uh, the bigger cities are obviously going to be able to, uh, we're going to be able to get them uh, print or packets a lot easier than some of the more rural places. But we do want to get rural signatures. We want to make sure that uh, rural folks have a voice. So uh, that's something that's really important to us. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're on Facebook, vote no on eight sixteen. If you're on, uh, if you don't have Facebook, you can email us at vote no on eight sixteen at Gmail. Right on. Let me find the mute button. Right on. That's exciting. I will put links to the Facebook page and to that form in the show notes for this episode. So listeners, if you are interested in joining the effort to help. Uh, you can sign up there. I just did myself, actually. So, um, very exciting. Well, Joshua, <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show today. Um, you're welcome to stick around, uh, but if you want to for the rest of the episode, Scott and I are going to chat about some other terrible things that happened at the Capitol this week. But if you need to go, that's fine too. Uh, I don't need to go, uh, but since I'm not going to talk anymore, I'll probably turn my camera off and just listen to the show here <laughs> instead of catching it here. <laughs> Like all of you, <laughs> all of the shows. Listen to it. It's great. Great podcast. All right, cool. Well, uh, thanks for being here. And if you want to chime in, just uh, go right ahead. Even better. All right, Scott. Um, so 
elsewise, was that a word? I don't know. Other, it, is, other things, it is now. <laughs> other things that happened this week in the legislature, it's all blurring together, right? I, I, I know. We're... Mention off the cuff that uh, both committees for redistricting um, approved their maps that they proposed last week. And I think we talked about it last week some. Uh, the I will say I've had a chance to dig in a bit more um, to the maps. I've, I finally got the data files from both chambers. I just look at them. I have a report almost finished. We will send it out either over the weekend or on Monday um, before the maps go to a floor vote. But listeners, I'll tell you, the maps are not terrible. They're honestly pretty close to what we have right now. And in a few ways, they're slightly better. They are slightly more competitive. They are slightly more compact. Um, although it's interesting, I, I kind of did a deep dive into the compactness scores and not everyone's district got equally compact. Some got way more compact, like Senate District 30, in which I live. And um, we've we've maligned it with great detail. In fact, I have a uh, life-size costume of the old Senate District 30. Uh, and it looks ridiculous. New Senate District 30 is... Uh, very compact, one of the most compact districts in the Senate. And some of this is just a reflection of what's happening, where population has moved. Uh, they also, I think, made a concerted effort to try to make districts look a bit more sensical with two big caveats. One, uh, they protected incumbents, right? So no incumbent was drawn out. That was on purpose. And by doing that, you are hamstrung in how you can draw the lines. And so some of the districts look a little funny. And then secondly, it's still politicians drawing districts for politicians, right? Like they get to draw their own districts and they will say, they have said, oh, well, it's up to voters. The voters can pick who gets to come up here. This is true. However, they don't make it easy. Well, and when you choose which voters are going to be voting for you, that uh, might skew the results a little bit, right? Like if, if I'm in a singing contest, which Lord help us all, that's the case. But if I get to pick the judges... I might have a shot, right? Like, so we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. So that happened this week, uh, and then, um, man, was that uh, Thursday? That it was Thursday that the Senate adjourned early. Yeah. So there was uh, a a pastor that was invited. Was he invited by Senator Young? I believe he was. Yes, it was Pastor Lee from. Uh, um, Oh, what's the name of the church? I'll come up with a second, but go ahead. Um, who was the chaplain of the week for the uh, the Senate here in Oklahoma um, as part of their, their chaplain of the week program. And he, I, I, don't, I don't have the text of his remarks in front of me, but he he uh, delivered remarks at the end of his week as, uh, as chaplain. And at the end of his, uh, at the end of his, his, I don't know if you want to call it a sermon, but at the, at the end of his, his remarks, he um, admonished pretty directly Senator Nathan Dom for some absolutely uh, just um, horrific, sexist, misogynistic uh, language uh, uh, statements that he made about Vi Vice President Kamala Harris earlier this week. Um, I have the I have some of the language here. Uh, Sean Ashley from eCapital, of course, <laughs> happened to be off work yesterday as he uh, shared on Twitter um, because he's uh, Eastern Orthodox. And uh, so it was a uh, religious off from, off from Maundy Thursday. 
Yes, indeed. That's it was uh, for Easter. So he this morning was back and um, uh, tweeted about this. So Reverend Dr. Lee E. Cooper from Prospect Baptist Church in Oklahoma City was a guest of Senator Young, and some of his remarks uh, from his inspirational message near the end of the floor session included. Uh, quote, the state of affairs in this nation and even in the state of Oklahoma is troubling, particularly because we are so divided that it appears destruction is inevitable, which oof, that's good. I mean, it's bad news, but that's a good line. Uh, he said every culture from the beginning of time until now has deemed certain behaviors to be wrong. Everyone should have after last week stood up and said, no, we will not have this in our Senate. You cannot make statements about straws and sipping. Not only should that have come from the women senators in this chamber, but it should have come from everyone who heard it or heard about it. They should have deemed it wrong, Senator Dom. And so directly uh, pointed statement at Senator Dom. And then Reverend Cooper added, you didn't have to take it back. It's still sexist. It's still misogynistic. It is still. And then at that point, three members walked off the floor, including Senator Dom. And then Reverend Cooper said, yeah, walk out. This is not the first time. It is still racist. Um, and uh, so shortly after that, I guess, they went and the Senate went to an executive session, which they haven't done since 2013. And it may be only the second time they've ever done it. We are getting mixed reports on whether or not, on how many times the Senate has used executive session. I, I do not claim to know all of the weird rules of the house and the senate they got a whole handbook full of them that you know who knows what all's in there but of of the many rules that i did not know existed for the oklahoma legislature i had no idea that they could go into executive session and just kick everybody out yeah so they have they clear the clear the gallery and it's funny because when this kind of thing happens then you know uh okay ledge twitter is like wait what what happened can they do this uh, you know, uh, FOI Oklahoma yeah. uh, tweeted like, oh, so they wrote the Open Meetings Act. They exempted themselves in the Open Meeting Act and they can still go into executive session, which is secret. Uh, I believe from my understanding, both this time and the last time they did that um, basically for some, you know, some family talk. Just this is just for us. Family yeah. talk of these are the rules and decorum right and like to get a reminder which i when they say reminder i hear scolding right like yeah. they're getting a yeah. scolding of, this is how you're supposed to act up here and just because you get your feelings hurt doesn't mean you can walk out and compound the problem right this yeah. is not making it better folks so um so that, i mean that was a that was a big deal um it was horrific what you know i mean and i hate that i mean on the one hand i hate we're even talking about it because the senator said you know one of the reasons that he said it was because he knows it would have legs um, and get him attention. Um, but it is still just a horrific thing to say, but, um, you know, that's, there was that. So that was, that was an event this week. One thing that is notable and I'm, I'm literally just going to mention it. I don't think we should try and talk about it at all because I'll just confuse myself and, uh, you guys, cause it's really complicated. Um, but non-doc has a really great piece on the meeting of the grand river dam, uh, authority, uh, committee yesterday at the legislature really important meeting has um significant impacts about how and where uh how how um different uh power organizations in oklahoma can purchase power and from whom they can purchase power and how they raise funds i mean it's really it's, it's very complicated but very important 
and takes on, I think, new importance after the ice storm that we had that uh, had rolling blackouts for the first time in our history and, um, uh, you know, threatens people with uh, a thousand, thousand percent increases in their energy costs every month. So um, I'm rather than us try and like recap the meeting and explain what it all means, I think we should just let Trace do what he does best and go read his article where he takes you through all of the details. And that's it. Uh, that's it. Non-doc. So that was a an under the radar, very much in the weeds, but very important thing that happened at the Capitol this week. Uh, Trace is always doing a good job, but he this session has had several articles like that. I feel like that have been things that are under the radar, but are super important, right? Like some of the state agencies that handle financing for other state agencies that like don't have websites and all that, that he's um, come across and, and written about where it's given even those of us who pay relatively close attention to the legislature and to the state government uh, and how it works, we're caught by surprise. Right. And so I think uh, hats off to Nondoc. And I'll say, if you're interested in another good podcast that is somewhat about uh, Oklahoma politics, their live from the news dungeon is uh, a non-doc podcast is actually pretty entertaining. And I uh, hope to be a guest on there maybe later this summer. Yeah, I was going to say uh, another big, big development this week is a house bill 1175. 1775. 1775. Yeah. House bill 1775. Um, this is a bill that would, uh, gosh, I mean, in the la- the language in this has changed a few times and I haven't read the most recent version of it. This is a bill that passed uh, yesterday um, in, in that is in the house, right? This is a, a committee sub that it passed the house then went to the Senate. Right. And is this a Senate committee uh, Senate substitution that passed in the house? Or do I have that backwards? Um, man, I forget. I'll keep talking and I'll look it up to see where is it's it, at. Now. But it did, it got through the house yesterday. Um, you know, uh, this is a bill that would essentially ban how we can, how we can teach, um, about race and race in systems in Oklahoma. Um, it, it bans the, the teaching of something called critical race theory, um, which is something is a, an emerging um, kind of academic discipline, I guess. I guess you could say um, it's a subset of it's a subset of a particular school of philosophy that looks essentially at um, power structures and kind of makes the argument that that race is a construct that was designed um, and conceived specifically to uphold certain power structures in Western civilization and that those power structures and, and the effects of race in those power structures persist to this day. That's, that's my understanding of it. I'm not a philosopher or a social scientist. So um, if anybody, if anybody who fancies themselves an expert on critical race theory wants to come on this show and talk to us in more detail about exactly what it means, uh, that would be awesome because it's very complicated, but suffice it to say, um, this is a bill that, um, in addition to banning critical race theory, essentially bans, and the language is really terrible, just kind of like what Josh was saying earlier about uh, the language in the, in the protest bill. The language is really terrible because it essentially bans the teaching of anything that might make anyone feel guilty about some aspect of who they are. Um, it's a it's a closed-minded bill. It's a bill that... Um, really is it's it's the legislature trying to be the thought police um 
and you know, I made a comment at the beginning that, you know, we should be able to hold multiple ideas that seem intention. Like we should be able to hold those things in our head at the same time. And this is a bill that that basically says no, we shouldn't expect anyone to be capable of that. We shouldn't expect our students to be capable of it or our teachers to be capable of it. This uh, this this is a bill that basically says no. Anything that might make us uncomfortable, and when I say us, I mean specifically white people, um, anything that might make us uncomfortable, we shouldn't talk about and we're not going to talk about. Um, it's really terrible. There's going to be, I think, numerous challenges to this as well. Um, but, you know, this is one of those bills that is really disappointing to me. Um, I'm not going to call anybody out by name because we don't, we try not to do that too much in the show. But it's just disappointing when you look at this bill and see who voted for it. Um, yeah, it, well, it, it's, it's it's just upsetting. Yeah, no, it is very upsetting. And if, if if you watched the floor debate or read the transcript of it, it just like makes you sick to your stomach. It's pretty egregious, and it's pretty clear as many things that uh, these dudes don't know what they're talking about, right? Like someone came to them and said, "We got to run this. They're running across the country. Everyone pile on. We got to pass this by any means necessary." And they're just throwing out whatever they can. I think Josh wants to jump back in. Yeah, you know, just a, just a little. Um... For fundamentally, right, the critical race theory and in general, these uh, diversity um, and equity uh, classes are about introspection. And what we have been seeing um, scientifically from introspection is that it does make people kind of do the hard examinations at a time where we're talking about race and gender uh, more than we ever have as a society before trying to take away the, uh, people's ability to have just the foundational uh, aspects of education on that is is this conservative push to to prohibit the movement from continuing forward. Uh, the reality is there's some hard things that we have to deal with in this country, right, especially around race and especially around gender roles, um, because it's something that we've been seeing as a continued problem. The problem with Oklahoma in general is that we don't value education nearly as much as we should have. And all this does is say, hey, whereas you could have had access to this level of education, we don't think that's education that we should be providing for folks. And that is an issue on so many different levels. But it's one of the fundamental issues that we have in Oklahoma is that without valuing education uh, as a concept in general, we make kind of laws like this that restrict uh, people's ability to have that education and for it to not only exist outside of high schools, but actually target some universities is an even more problematic um, portion of this bill. Because OU is one of those you know, universities that could be negatively impacted by this. And freshman orientation is, is one of the places where they learn these kind of premises because this is the first time you're out from under your parents' roof for a lot of young people. And you're in a position where you have this freedom and access to be around so many different groups of people uh, to not have this education provided at freshman orientation really sets a lot of our uh, young people up for failure. hundred percent. Like, yes, yes. To everything you said. I also, you know, and Andy and I had a text conversation about this a few weeks ago. I think, I think it was in relation to an earlier version of this bill, but like, when has banning books ever been on the right side of history? 
right? When has banning what you can teach ever been on the right side of history, right? When has, when has saying, no, no, this isn't something you can think about. When has that ever been like, I don't, I mean, like, even if you think this is a good idea, right? Even if you're somebody who voted for this, how do you not look at the past and say like, oh, you know what? Those, those folks that say you can't think about this, talk about this, read this or do this, seems like they pretty much always lose eventually, right? Like, I mean, like Scott, the world is flat and we I can't mean, talk like, about it. You know what I mean? Like it's never, I just, I mean, even if you think that this is a good thing in principle, which it's clearly not, like this is just why like why are we even having a conversation about banning what we can and can't teach right especially at a time when we hear conservatives mostly all over the country bitching about cancel culture right and about you know um suppression of ideas and oh you know Mayo Yiannopoulos was supposed to come speak at our campus and he got canceled for being a racist and they like lose their mind over that but now they're going to ban what we can teach right like well scott i'll point out two things one this is the same institution that just a few years ago was requiring or attempting to require that schools uh include non-scientific data about dinosaurs you remember those bills right and also oh, is this about dinosaurs being in the bible is that what that was yeah, yeah, yeah. about creation creationism and requiring creationism to be taught um in science classes and and then on a bigger picture right um to your point like this kind of resistance to change even in the face of clear and present data right that presents more accurate things or a a broader framework um (laughs) the uh the catholic church excommunicated galileo in 1630 something for saying that the earth was round they didn't acknowledge that he was right until 1992 right it was like 350 years later and so the uh this is not this is not a new phenomenon to humans um but it is no less frustrating right that was egregious this is egregious in a very different way you know i think the craziest part about this and is that at a point in time where we have the greatest level of access to information possible, right? Nobody in history has had this level of access to information. We are stating that this is something we don't want taught by professionals and educational institutions. That doesn't stop it from being learned. It just takes it out of the schools. And so this is going to be something that somebody is teaching to young people regardless. Now, whether or not that happens in the school or whether or not that happens on the internet, is going to be something that now we don't even know uh, the framework they're using. We don't even have credential sources for them. And this information is now something that they're not supposed to discuss in an educational institution. The reality is the, the, the part that I feel like they're missing more than anything is that when you don't involve teachers in the education uh, of young people, that now there's less reliable education or less even uh, censored education. If you don't want people to learn about all of the things and they have to go learn about it from the internet, right? They're going to learn it regardless, but now we're not involved as a state. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Joshua, I really like what you said a minute ago about 
uh, introspection being so I, sometimes hard, right? Like growing as a person is not easy. Getting older, learning new things about yourself, especially, and trying to incorporate that, incorporate that into your sense of identity and who you are and how you relate to the world and the people around you is not easy. Like this week, I listened to a, a podcast um, that was recommended to me by someone close to me. It's really good. And it's called, it's the podcast is in the open is the name of the show. And the episode is called why is getting better so hard. And as a, uh, as a licensed therapist, this spoke to me in lots of ways, but that it's it, the, the process of getting better is takes work and it takes um, critical thinking. And it takes, as Scott said earlier, holding two ideas that may be in opposition to one another in in both hands and like figuring out uh, where the truth exists um, in, in general terms, right? Like a, a classic example is just goodness and badness, right? None of us are good or bad entirely. We all have good and bad features or aspects of our personality. Um, when it comes to race, right? Like how, how, how we balance our things we've learned versus things we've been raised to believe uh, and how we how we pull all these strings um, to find balance in life is a delicate, difficult process that lasts the entire lifetime. And so to just cut it off <laughs> clearly from the beginning uh, is not literally not helping anybody, not the students, not the teachers, not society as a whole. Well, I think, you know, if I could add just one last part, and I'm sure we need to move on to whatever other topics you guys have. Uh, I'm so invested now. Uh, invite me back anytime. Um, at this this law is being passed in the same legislature where you had one elected official refer to uh, children as colored babies. Uh, you had another one say that BLM and the KKK are the same organization. You have this you know senator you guys just talked about who was making uh, jokes, uh, extremely misogynistic jokes about um, the first, you know, female vice president in our nation's history. If anything, they have, you know, reaffirmed the importance and the need of this, not just in the classrooms, but in the legislature. They, they need to create classes like this and requirements like this for our legislature since they obviously don't understand it. But rather than admit that there's an issue Internally, uh, they, they want to pass this legislation to say, we hope that the next generation won't hold elected officials accountable is almost what this feels like. Because if we hopefully like keep uh, the, the next generation ignorant on these issues, then maybe I can make my sexist jokes without having any negative backlash. Or maybe I can make these uh, racial missteps without having any negative backlash. And for one of, you know, for the colored babies argument, right, they had a, a conversation with them and said, you know, be very honest and frank and say that you didn't know another word to say instead of just saying that you misspoke or, or that you didn't mean it that way or that, you know, try to walk it back. Like own the fact that you thought that this was acceptable rather than try to pretend like you didn't know that it was unacceptable. And he couldn't do that because the leadership in, in the House told him this is what we feel like the, the statement should be. And that is the biggest problem. Again, that introspection, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's extremely difficult to do 
because it makes you examine the fact that these are my faults. These are my shortcomings. And there are so many people who don't want to identify their own shortcomings. I, I just started therapy in the last like two years uh, after advocating it for it for years and years before that, but being hypocritical and saying everybody needs therapy and not going. But as I've been going, it's like, man, these these are what I need to work on. These are some amazing strengths that I have, but you know, there's still a long way for us to go. And I think every single legislative session reminds us as a state and as a people that there's a long uh, way for us to go in terms of growth. And I hope and pray that one day we will actually start making progress on that and instead of going in the opposite direction. I think that's like a perfect place to end it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I got a few comments, but I'm not going to share them because that's a good spot. Yeah, uh, Josh, thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for time, chiming in uh, again on this last part. I'm glad you were here. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Uh, this is the show is amazing, uh, obviously. Um, but to be a part of it and to be a part of this conversation, this is ne necessary. These are the kind of conversations that people need to have with folks who don't disagree with them on everything, with folks who are willing to deep dive into it, with folks who are working on themselves. Like we all approach this conversation saying, hey, we don't have all the answers and we're not perfect by any means, but if we work together uh, and, and have good conversations, we can make progress. And, and so that's the one thing that I love about the show. That's why I was super excited to get the invitation. Please come back anytime. Uh, you, you you let me know when I, I don't have a <laughs> because of this veto referendum, but I'll still make time for you all. Great, thank you, listeners. Thanks for being here as well. Uh, to that last point, if you make a comment or tell a joke and you feel bad about it, stop, pause, think about why that is, uh, and don't just you know try to pass a law to say that it's okay if you make those jokes without feeling bad. Scott, thanks for being here too, man. Scott points at the screen. Listeners can't hear that, but I'll say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Everybody have a good week. Bye.